So I was told that uh, Zach Johnson was supposed to read this morning, but he left feeling sick, uh, not feeling well. So you can pray for Zach, um, but you can also see that when something goes awry, my first reaction is to look to Marcel for help. <laughs> so it was, Marcel was not on to read this morning, but I depend on him so much that I automatically look to him. So, um, so anyway, he very graciously hopped up and went to grab his, his Bible and make sure he could get up here. And so um, <laughs> I certainly didn't mean to call him out. That's just my first reaction there. So anyway, uh, you can pray for Zach that he will, he will feel better. Um, Open up to Ephesians 5. That's where we're at this morning. I don't know if you think about heaven a whole lot, but uh, what sort of place do you imagine heaven to be where God dwells? How would you characterize it? If if someone were to ask you to write a paragraph or two, what what words would you use? How would you characterize it? It's easy to think of heaven as, you know, a place of light and angels, fluffy clouds and singing, although probably most of us are beyond that sort of cultural caricature of heaven. But what we know about heaven from Scripture is that God dwells there, and so since he dwells there, you would have to think that heaven is a place that is shaped and determined by who he is and by his character. So what is the crucial reality of heaven? Well, there was a pastor who lived in the 1700s in Connecticut that you've probably heard of named Jonathan Edwards. Most people know Jonathan Edwards from the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it's a great sermon. You should read it, but he obviously wrote and preached a lot of other sermons and books, which are fantastic, and he has a sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. It's a beautiful sermon, and he makes the point in that sermon that love is the defining feature of heaven, that it really is all about God's love and about love in heaven. And so when we think about heaven, when we think about the place where God dwells, then we should automatically think about love. Here's what Edwards had to say in this sermon. Heaven is a part of creation that God has built for this end, to be the place of his glorious presence, and it is his abode forever. And here will he dwell and gloriously manifest himself to all eternity. And this renders heaven a world of love. This is beautiful. God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love as the sun placed in the midst of the visible heavens in a clear day fills the world with light. Heaven is a world of love. And if God's dwelling place and our eternal home is defined by love, if his kingdom is defined by love, then as citizens of that kingdom, who are in a foreign land, in a foreign kingdom, then we ought to bring that atmosphere and that culture to bear on the world in which we live. We should be defined by love as well. Love ought to be the essential feature of our lives, of our families, of our church, of the world in which we live, the community in which we dwell. And that's exactly the point that Paul is making in Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 6. He's building here on 
what he began in chapter 4 and verse 1, where he told us to walk worthy, suitably, of the calling to which we've been called. And that calling is certainly a call of love. It's a call that is, has been extended to us because of God's love. And early in chapter 4, he talked about Walking suitably means walking in unity. And then he said walking suitably, the end of chapter 4, means walking in holiness. And now in chapter 5, he makes it very clear to us that walking worthy or suitably of that calling means that you and I walk a lifestyle of love. But he's going to tell us here what that practically looks like. It's great to say that. I want my life to be characterized by love, but what does that look like, functionally speaking, step after step, day after day, in my life, in my family, in my church, in my workplace? That's what he's going to tell us here. So, very simple this morning. We're going to get all the way through verse 6. No part 1 and part 2, but here's what he's going to say. Three manifestations of a walk of love. Quite simple, quite practical, quite real. The first one of these is to imitate God's love demonstrated by Christ. Imitate God's love demonstrated by Christ in verses 1 and 2. So you can see in verse 1, he begins with the word therefore. We're getting used to that, I think. And you know that when he begins this section with the word therefore, he's connecting back. And ultimately, he's going all the way back, certainly to chapter 4, verse 32, where we're to be kind and forgiving as God in Christ forgave us. But ultimately, he's going back to chapter 4 and verse 1. He's telling us to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. This is the third time that he's used this command to walk. It's another instance of what we should be all about as those who've been called out of darkness and into light. This is how we react to our calling. As you can see the title of the series, Recall and React. We react with a walk of love. Look specifically what he tells us in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Now, you know what this means, to, to imitate someone, to copy someone else. Children mimic adults. They do it all the time. They do it in order to learn. This is how they develop, is they copy what they see you and I doing, how we talk. They get the words out and and mumble and try to say the right words and we correct them and they try again and they copy what we do. And that tendency doesn't fade away once you grow up. We may not be as brash about our imitation of others, but we certainly do copy. It's how we're designed. It's how we're supposed to learn. It's how we're supposed to live. There are other places in the New Testament where Paul actually tells believers, copy me, which seems bold and seems brash, for Paul to say that, but he's saying, look, if you want to look, see what it looks like to walk as a believer, imitate me, copy me. And there's one, there's not one place in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians, where he actually says this, you became, he's commending this church, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Imitate me, Paul says, follow my example, but also you should imitate God. You should imitate him. It's the major way that we learn in our lives is we see what someone else does and we copy that. And that's why we have examples in the church, especially leaders. Elders are called to this. 
to set a lifestyle of holiness and love and godliness so that others can see that lifestyle and see it worked out in the day-to-day in family life in how they deal with other people and say, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. And we're all called to be examples to one another so that we can learn from one another and copy one another. People will watch and they will copy what you do. Here, Paul says we should mimic, copy God. And we do that precisely because of who we are. Look at the end of verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Children copy their parents. And here, this is the defining reality of who you and I are. We are beloved by God. We are his children. What's amazing about this description here? Beloved children is who else in Scripture is called a beloved child of God? We think about this reality. Matthew 3, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus is called the Beloved Son. And you and I have that same description applied to us, not because of any merit of our own, not because of who we are and anything that we have done, but we have that description applied to us because we are united with Jesus Christ. We are in union with him. Listen to how Paul puts this in Ephesians chapter 1. Verses four to six, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We're included now. We're part of the family. And in chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says, part of being a part of this family and walking suitably in your calling is that you imitate God because of who you are, because you are beloved by him and you have been adopted and brought into his family. And so now you act like it. We're his children. But of course, as his children, we can't imitate everything about God. It's kind of hard to be all-powerful and all-knowing. We can't be like God in those areas. And so Paul defines exactly what he means for us here. Look at verse 2. And walk in love. Here's how you copy God. Here's how you imitate him. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We have received love from God through Christ, and so we know that experience of what it looks like to receive love, and so that type of love must characterize our lifestyle, the way we walk. And what is the defining feature of Christ's love? What do we know most about Christ's love? How does he demonstrate it to us? 
Well, he demonstrates it to us by giving himself up, by laying down his own rights and giving himself up for us. He sacrifices himself for our benefit and for our good. It says here in verse 2 that he gave himself up for us, and, and he uses two words to describe this giving up of himself, a sacrifice and an offering. Now, if you are familiar with your Bible, or even if you're not, those two words go back to the Old Testament. And when you read those words, you should think of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And in the Old Testament, with Israel, sacrifices were necessary. They were a part of life, and they were a part of life because of sin. Sin had entered the world, and sin disrupted the relationship between God and mankind. And so in order for there to be a reconciliation of that relationship, there had to be a just payment. Something had to cover the sin, because the sin deserves a penalty. It deserves to be punished because it's disruptive, as we'll see later in this passage. Something had to pay the just penalty for that sin. Something had to be offered up to the one offended to cover that sin. And so in the Old Testament, animals died and their blood was shed as an atoning sacrifice to cover the sin that had caused a schism between God and and man. But as you read in the Old Testament, these animals had to be offered over and over again. All the time, a new lamb was brought and was killed on the altar and was offered as a sacrifice and an offering to God because the animal's blood couldn't fully and finally cover the sin. It could only deal with it temporarily, for a moment, for a bit of time. But Jesus comes And no one forced him to offer himself as a sacrifice. He gave himself up. And he offered his life and his blood willingly for us on our behalf as a substitute. And he did what no Old Testament sacrifice could ever do. He eradicated our sin. He satisfied the just penalty for our sin. And he made full and final payment for our sin. And it is erased and it is gone. And we're not held responsible for it anymore. Complete atonement. Complete removal of sin as far as the east is from the west. And that sort of self-sacrifice, that is the model for what we need to do in love. Now, you and I don't literally give up our blood, and we're not literally crucified on a cross on behalf of those that we love. Our calling is something a bit more normal and a bit more mundane. Our calling is to give up our rights and our desires and our good and sacrifice those things for the benefit and the good of those around us. We model the love of Christ by daily considering others. And so we give up ourselves, our comforts, for the good of those around us. And one of the primary ways that we do this is our second manifestation of a walk of love. We imitate God's love demonstrated by Christ, and then secondly, we avoid what is unlovely 
and instead give thanks. And this is in verses 3 and 4. We model the sacrifice of Christ daily in all of our actions and our, our desires. We give up our own wants. And one of the primary ways we do this is we, we avoid what is unlovely. We put to death those things that will damage our relationships with others. So we're to walk in sacrificial love, and there are lots of patterns of life and ways of living that are antithetical to a life of love. And that's what he gives us in verses 3 and 4. Look first at verse 3. But, so contrast to love, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is fitting or proper among saints. So three areas of sin that are specifically mentioned here that are the opposite of love. These are unlovely patterns of life. To walk in these things is to walk the opposite of love. First of all, sexual immorality. This means any sexual activity that falls outside the guidelines that God has given us in his word. The Greek word is porneia here, which is pretty vivid for us. So what are those guidelines? What guidelines does God set down for sexual activity in his word? Sex is a gift of God, a good gift to be experienced only in the marriage relationship between one man and one woman, according to Genesis chapter 2. Sex is more than just a physical act, as our world would have you believe. Biblically speaking, it's the union of two souls, and it is the complete self-giving of one person to another. And God puts boundaries around sexual activity because he's protecting us from its misuse. And he prohibits its misuse because he's protecting something that's good and is a gift and is valuable for us. So... Any sexual activity outside of God's guidelines is inherently self-centered and will ultimately exploit the other person. When our world reduces sex to a physical act, then it becomes something that is engaged in for wholly self-centered reasons. It's a twisting and a bending of a good gift of God, and it's a using of it for my own self-centered purposes. And the only place where sexual activity can be a whole life-giving act of love is within the bonds, the covenant bonds of marriage. Anything outside of that is automatically unloving. That's why Paul mentions it here. Second thing he mentions, impurity, but sexual immorality and all impurity. Impurity is a, is a broad category of sin, right? It's, it's kind of hard to nail down, but it certainly includes sexual desires and activity, but it's any sort of morally corrupt passions or desires, things that we want that corrupt us and that go against God's good plan for us in his word. So a good place to get a grasp of this is Romans 1. Speaking of people who reject God as the creator and worship creation instead of him, Paul says, therefore, God gave them up in the desires of their hearts to impurity, 
So desires, wrong desires, set on the wrong thing, used in the wrong way, lead us to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So impurity results from self-centered desires. And he actually lists some of these passions and desires later in this chapter. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Gossip is an impure passion. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The impure person is the one who is governed by corrupt and self-focused passions. And therefore, impurity is the opposite of a sacrificial life of love. Third, here Paul mentions covetousness. I mean, you know this one, it's mentioned in the Ten Commandments. Covetousness is the desire for what someone else has, and included in that is the wish that they didn't have it. I want that, and I want it so much that really I would, I would take it from them if I could. I want it, and I don't want them to have it. I mean, you can see in, in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, it's wanting, it's coveting your neighbor's Wife, your neighbor's donkey. It's wanting what they have instead of them having it as a gift from God. So these three areas of sin are very common, very common patterns for people, and they're the opposite of love. And so because these are the opposite of love, look what he says in verse 3. These sins must not even be named among you. Why? As is proper or fitting among you. Saints, these patterns of living, these habits, are not suitable for believers. It's not fitting for you to be defined by one of these areas of sin. It's not fitting because we're walking in love, and these are antithetical to love. But these aren't the only areas of sin. Look in verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. We talked quite a bit last week about our speech patterns, so I won't go into great detail here and describe each of these, but this is really, these are some of the primary ways that we sin against one another. And these are sort of the acceptable sins that we adopt into our lives as believers. And we think that our speech isn't as big a deal as sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness. But Paul would say here that our speech is one of the primary ways that we act opposite of love, that we live a life that is antithetical to sacrificial love. And so Paul would say dirty jokes, sarcastic ridicule of another person are out of place for believers. And so in all of this, he says sin is fundamentally unlovely. And it's fundamentally unlovely because it corrupts and it destroys. Sin takes, it uses, it abuses, and it fails to honor the other person as made in the image of God, and it fails to actually love and care for him or her. Sin dehumanizes and it destroys when we pursue it. It destroys us and it destroys the other person. And so here, Paul says, don't 
give yourselves to these things. These are not appropriate. These are not fitting for saints. But here is how you actually walk in love. Here's what is appropriate for saints at the end of verse 4. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Man, this is the umbrella that should be over all of our lives as believers. The way to walk in love is to cultivate a perspective of thanksgiving, thankfulness. Rather than being self-focused, here's why Paul mentions thanksgiving here. Thanksgiving, thankfulness, is inherently, fundamentally outward-looking, isn't it? You are appreciating what has been given to you. You are looking out and recognizing that this person had no obligation for you to have this. They gave it to you. So what thankfulness does is it recognizes that all of life, everything that you and I have is a gift from God. And so I start to see that everywhere. And I respond with thankfulness to life And the world and all the elements of the world are gifts given to us from God. And they're to be enjoyed by us. And then praise is to be directed back to the one who has given these gifts to us. I was challenged this past week. A book that I'm reading, um, the guy mentioned that uh, ordinary, mundane events in our lives are gifts from God, and that that God actually delights in ordinary, day-to-day, mundane things. And that's why they keep happening in our lives, right? Like he structures our life. God, the sun comes up every morning, and God loves it. And that's how he's designed it. It happens over and over again. And so these repetitive, ordinary moments in our lives, God has given these things to us as a gift because he loves them, and so they keep happening to us. He takes great delight in it. God is the God of the ordinary and the repetitive and the mundane. And so our world tries to tell us that life is not important and it doesn't matter unless it's a big dramatic event that has international impact, but that's hardly how God operates. It's hardly how he has organized his world. He's given all of these moments to us as Gifts to be received and to be thankful for and to be directed back to him in praise and honor because he is a giver of all good things. And so when we're thankful, our our mindset begins to shift and we stop seeing the world as something to be taken and used and people to be used for my own self-centered reasons. And we start to appreciate these ordinary moments as gifts from God. We start to receive them with joy and thankfulness. I had a great experience of this this past week. I was sitting down trying to read a book and in the evening, and Gray, our three-year-old, was bent on trying to wrestle in that moment. And he was jumping on me, and I'm sitting there trying to read, and he's wanting me to tickle him and, and wrestle with him, and... I had a, I thought of this, this quote about the mundane, ordinary moments of life, and so I'm sitting there in that moment, and I can either receive that very, very ordinary event as a gift from God and be thankful for that, or I can think about me and what I want in that moment, 
And I can be self-centered and then I can respond in malice and leave me alone, give me a chance, right? And so this time I happened to do the right thing and thank God for this moment and embrace it and receive it as a gift and wrestle with the kid. And it was a delight and a joy. And so in that illustration, thankfulness, receiving that as a gift, cuts off sin's appeal and its power over me. Because now it's not about me, it's about what God has given. And so I receive it as a gift and I enter in and there's great joy and delight in that that is then directed back to God in praise. Thankfulness appreciates every person as a gift and not as someone to be used for my own ends. And that's why he mentions this here as the exact opposite of all of these sin patterns in our lives. So we are to be motivated by the example of Christ to give of ourselves, our desires, our comforts in sacrificial love to others. We are to avoid what is unlovely here and rather receive life as a gift and return our thankfulness back to the creator in praise. And Paul wants us to be motivated by that, but there's also another motivation that he brings in here to try to help us to see how important it is to walk in love. And this one may surprise you. And it's found in verses five and six. Understand the end of those who lack love. Paul's doing this and he's mentioning this here as a motivation for us. He wants us to consistently walk in love and he holds out a wonderful example in Christ and then he throws a warning out here. That if you don't walk in love and if you don't pursue these things, you need to understand what happens to those who are characterized by these sins in verses three and four. What does a life of self-centeredness look like in the end? Where does it end up? Look at verse five. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So he repeats the same three sins that he did in verse 3. The opposite of love, a lifestyle of unloveliness and self-centeredness. And he repeats them in the same order here. And he gives a little bit of clarification and says that covetousness is actually idolatry. So when you want something, when you covet something, that thing has become the center of your life. It has displaced God as your object of worship. And here he says that anyone who is defined by these three patterns of sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. That person is not a beloved child of God. Now, what is the inheritance here? Well, the inheritance is not simply a reward for believers. It's not simply some future reward that you may or may not get depending on whether you participate in these sins, but either way, you're going to heaven. The inheritance here is the reality of redemption. Paul has already defined this in Ephesians chapter 1. To inherit the kingdom of God and Christ means to receive salvation. It means to be saved. To not inherit the kingdom of God and Christ means to receive God's wrath. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I mean, this is quite the warning here, right? In verse 6, he says, do not be deceived with empty words. There are people who are clinging to lies, and they honestly think that they can inherit the kingdom of God, of Christ and God, and that they will be with him in the world of love for all eternity. They think they can avoid the wrath of God and still pursue a lifestyle defined by these three sins. And Paul would say to them, you are self-deceived. It is quite possible to be self-deceived. To honestly, in your heart of hearts, think, I'm good. I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. I have been a part of this church for 30 years. And to honestly believe that when you close your eyes in death, that you will wake up with God for all eternity. And yet, your lifestyle is defined by these three sins. And Paul says, if you practice these sins... You will not inherit the kingdom, and the wrath of God will be your end. You are proving that you are a son of disobedience. Now, there are lots of people today who have trouble with this concept of God's wrath. They struggle with it. There was just a book published recently, and actually an article about it in the New York Times, about a a very prominent theologian who wrote this book arguing against eternal punishment and the idea of God's wrath resting on people for all eternity. And he sort of mocks the idea and criticizes it. And he presents his view, which is universalism, which if you're not familiar with that, is the idea that eventually everyone will be saved and everyone will be redeemed and enter into God's presence for all eternity. Now, I I understand it's uncomfortable to talk about God's wrath. I get it. It should be, right? It's not a pleasant thing to think about. The God of the universe pouring out his wrath over sin for all eternity. It should be uncomfortable. But here's the thing. If you lose God's wrath, you lose his love. You can't have one or the other. They both go together. I mean, we've been talking all morning this morning, almost all morning, about what is lovely And what is unlovely? God would not be a God of love if he simply let what is unlovely prosper and exist and continue on. And to be a God of love, he has to value that which is love. And that requires him hating what damages what is lovely and hating what is unlovely. And he hates what is unlovely because it's a parasite on his good creation. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, foolishness, filthy talk, all of those are parasitic. They disrupt, they destroy. And for God to truly be a God of love, he has to despise those things. But sadly, there are people who claim to be believers who honestly think they can continue in a life given to sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, 
and that they will inherit God's kingdom of love, even though they have embraced what is unlovely, and that God will just sort of, oh, that's fine. It's all good. Everything will work out. They think they can embrace what is destructive and unlovely, and God will simply look the other way and usher them into his kingdom of love. And Paul uses this warning here specifically to motivate us. It's quite easy to be deceived. It is. It's natural for us to look around, right, and see people who are financially well-off, who are, are socially at the top of the ladder. They seem to be winning at life, and they're participating in these sins. And we think, they won't really suffer God's wrath for eternity because of this. So I can be like them in some ways. So what, what should happen here is this should sort of jolt us out of passivity, sort of knock us out of our fog and help us to understand. This should embolden us to a life of sacrificial love and a rejection of what is unlovely and a holy hatred for these, these destructive and self-centered areas of sin. What this warning should do is should strengthen us to build habits of love and sacrifice into our lives. And it should strengthen us to go back and to constantly look at the gospel and look at the sacrifice of Christ and say, I can't make it on my own. I need that sacrifice for me. I can't atone for my own sins because I am bent on participating in sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. My heart would continue to go that way. And so God, what I need is you. I need your sacrifice and I need renewal by the Holy Spirit and to humbly come before him and embrace his gift of love. That's what changes us. And that's what helps us to not be deceived and to see reality as it truly is. And then as we receive that gift of love, then we're motivated to share that gift of love with others in our words and in our actions. And so I pray that the good example of Christ and the warning of God's wrath and eternity without him will motivate us all together to pursue a life of love with the God of love. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your love. We don't deserve it. We are unworthy. We come into this world sinners. We come into this world impure. We come into this world self-focused. But the, the sacrifice of Christ brings light to our, our darkened souls and shows us how to truly live and to live well. And so I pray that you would illumine our hearts today Help us to see this, help us to embrace it, and help us to copy you in a life of sacrificial love for one another. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.